So as I stand here before you, I gotta be honest. Like every time I come up, I'm I'm a little nervous, and it just reminds me of a time when Michelle and I were first dating. I remember we were going to a birthday party in Waipahu, and we're sitting in my little CRX, 1988 CRX, um, really small car, at a stoplight. We're waiting for the light to turn red so we could go head on to the birthday par- party, and then. I looked at my rearview mirror, and behind me was this white car with blue lights on the top. And I was like, oh no, like, I, I got really nervous. On the side of my eye, I noticed, like, I saw something green. So I was like, oh, okay, I gotta go. So I hit the gas, and then halfway through the midsection, I realized that the light in front of me was red, and what I saw was the green turn signal for the people on the other lane to go. So midway through, I was like, ah, oh. so I just, I didn't even, like, See his lights go on, I just pulled to the side, knowing that he was going to pull me over. And then, of course, he turned his lights on, pulled me over on the side, and he's like, your light was red, why'd you do that? And I was like, because ah. I was nervous, he was behind me. So I have this like, love-hate relationship with policemen, I believe they, they serve the greater good of the community, and they do some great things, and some of my good friends are policemen, but once in a while... They get me, you know, and uh, <laughs> So just to let you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous being up here again. The title of our sermon is called, It's a Trap. When I read through this passage, all I could think about was like, um, you know, in the Big Bang Theory, they imitate this guy from Star Wars, this squid-looking guy, and then they were about to attack the Death Star, and he goes, it's a trap! And I'm like, that so just resonates in my head every time I read this passage. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to try something a little different today. Um, We do this in the classroom. It's called closed reading. Have you ever heard of it? Some Some teachers have. So what I do with the students is I read part of the passage, and they have to follow along. And then when I pause, they continue the rest of the sentence or the rest of the... So for us, we'll finish the rest of the passage. So if I, like, for... The first verse, I might read, another time Jesus went to the synagogue and a man, and then I might pause, and then you guys would finish up the sentence, with a shriveled hand was there, okay? So if you could participate with me, that'd be great, okay? So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Okay, another time Jesus went to, into the synagogue and a man... Some of them were looking for a reason to Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? So he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and... Then the Pharisees went out and began... They wanted to kill Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, with um, our hearts ready and open 
for you to speak to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, our minds, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, Lord, to um, strength for those who are tired, hope to those who are dealing with things today. Holy Spirit, come, minister to us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, for the Jewish people, now this Sabbath was more than just a day of rest. It was more than just having a day off before the next day of work. It wasn't the day where they had the Sunday blues, or for their case, the Saturday blues, because the next day is work. See, the observance of the Sabbath was largely ingrained in their Jewishness. This Sabbath thing was the thing that separated them from the other people, and they wore it like a badge of honor. It made them unique because they were the only people who would have a day to put aside for them to rest. Other countries, their neighboring countries, would be working seven days a week, working, working, working. This made them unique. Now, you need to realize this, that the Jewish people were people who were persecuted and killed for their Jewishness. So keeping the Sabbath was like a national flag that represented the freedom that is to come. And they waited for the day for a Messiah to liberate them from their oppression, their despair, and their dilemma. So this day of liberation, when they are liberated, would be their great day of rest. The Sabbath fulfilled. The Jewish people looked back at this establishment of the Sabbath origin from the Exodus story, where God liberated a people who were once foreigners and refugees in the land of Egypt. This Sabbath day is what made them unique, what made them special. It gave them hope, and it kept them faithful. Now, the problem with the Pharisees' observant of the Sabbath was that it soon became divisive. The Pharisees was using the Sabbath to accuse and to ensnare Jesus. One night, um, so in my classroom, we have this token system. So um, what we, we do, I give them some merits, and then... Um, so one night we decided to go to Target to get some gifts because at the end of the month I hold this like a shop and then they can exchange their merits for like small little tokens. So we went to Target, picked up some little trinkets, about $40 worth, and then we started heading back home. Now it was like 9 o'clock at night because I was trying to avoid traffic and it was a weekday. So I wanted to go there, get the things really quickly, come back home so I could prepare for the next day and rest up. So we went to Target, picked up the things, and started heading back home. So we, I took the um, airport viaduct um, and got on the freeway and started heading back to Pa'oa. So I was hit, um, going like 60 miles per hour, heading back home. And then at one point, the freeway near the airport meets with the freeway, the H1. Yeah? And then there's this one road that kind of connects the two, and then it goes under the tunnel, and then they both connect, right? So I was heading down there, keeping my speed limit, and then made the turn, and going towards the tunnel, like, I could see this figure in the distance. I was like, oh, what? There's a car on the side. Why is it on the side? And all of a sudden, 
blue lights started flashing. I'm like, wait, what? And he pulls out, and he's like parallel to the road. He pulls out and tells me to go to the side. So I'm like, so I put to the side, and I'm like, what's going on? Like, am I supposed to slow down? Like, I, I'm on the freeway, you know, and I didn't see any signs. So I pull out to the side. He's like, you know, he gets out the car, asks for my license, registration, and all those things that they normally do. And he goes, you know, this is like a 35-mile-per-hour area, and you were going 50. I was like, really? I didn't even know that. Like, and I'm a little upset and agitated because I just wanted to go to Target, get the things, do my good deed for the students, and get home. And I'm thinking, man, now I've got to, like, this trip has just become really expensive. Right? So I pull on the side, and he's like, so, you know, we had, I put you on the side because you were going faster than speed limit. And I was like, okay, so um, I'm thinking, can I contest this in court? Because like, I didn't see any signs, I didn't see anything. So I asked the police officer, okay, so, excuse me, officer, can you tell me like, where the sign is that says the speed limit changes from 55 to 35? Because that's pretty drastic. You know? And I wasn't like, being reckless. I was like, just driving normal. I, nobody was on the road. I wasn't going to hurt anybody besides maybe myself if I got hurt. So I'm thinking, what's the law there for? Like, is it to protect people or to make money for the state? What is the law there for? Isn't the intent of the law to keep people safe on the roads? And was I causing anybody harm? I wasn't reckless, but yet you trapped me. So I'm like, where is this? Like, can you please show me where the sign is that says the speed limit changes? Then I don't have a case. You know? And he's like, well, you know, the reason I gave you a ticket is because you were going faster than the speed limit. I'm like, can you please show me the sign? Like, just point me in the direction. He's like, you know what? Here's your ticket. And he's like, you have anything else to say? And I'm telling, I, I was frustrated. So I'm like, so what you're telling me is you have, you, you have no idea where the sign is. <laughs> you're just pulling me over just for the sake of, like, this is habit for you. And you just, and I'm like, what's the purpose of pulling me over? And I got really upset, and he got upset at me. He was frustrated at me, too. He was like, hey, you see these bumps over here? It means to slow down. And I'm thinking, I never got to the bumps. <laughs> but I feel like the policeman was just trying to trap me to get some, I mean, I don't think he was concerned about my safety or anything like that. He was just trying to trap me. And I think this is the way Jesus felt. Like they were in trying to entrap Jesus. Trying to snare Jesus. And for Jesus, this way of thinking represented the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Jesus asked the religious leaders, is it legal to do good on the Sabbath day or only evil? Is it legal to make people alive or only to kill them? To saving a life or taking a life? So let's look at the Sabbath. The first, um, the Sabbath comes up within the Ten Commandments. And if you look at Exodus 20, um, it gives us some idea about the Sabbath. Now it says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to, you, um, to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For six days the Lord 
made the heavens and the earth and the, uh, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sounds good, right? So he's saying, God rested on the seventh. You guys should rest on the seventh. So if you break this, there's a sin. Okay, sin. I can deal with that. Right? Ask God for forgiveness. Move on. Right? Now let's look at Exodus 30 and see how far they took this. In verse 14, it says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those of you who do any work on that day must be cut off from the people. For six days' work is to be done, but the seventh day is the day of Sabbath rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. Pretty harsh. Wow. It went from a sin where I, like, I could deal with that to like, life is over, game over. If you look at Exodus 35, it goes on to say this. For the six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath, rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So if you're cold on the Sabbath day, you can't even light a fire to keep you warm. Now there's a story in Numbers about a man was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And it says this. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Those who found him, gathered, found him gathering the sticks brought him to Moses, Aaron, and to the whole congregation. They put him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him outside the camp. The whole congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Pretty harsh. Now you might be saying, oh, but the Lord said this. And you have to look at the story. Um, you know, there's a part where the the author of Genesis thought that God said to Abraham, kill your firstborn. But God provided a way of escape. So this is what the characters in the story are thinking. This is what God's told to them. So they're following it. Does that make any sense? So if we look at verse 4 again, in, in Mark, it says, Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? That's a lot of death from Exodus. Is it lawful to save a life or to kill? Is that what God wants? And what did the Pharisees do? They remained silent. See, the problem with the Bible is if you look at a text without its context, you could probably justify anything you want to believe in. Apartheid, genocide, slavery, 
crusades, racism, you name it, they were all validated by the Bible. People took texts and said, oh, we, we can do this. It was in the Bible. But theologically, the Sabbath day is a reminder to Israel that God is creator and redeemer and Lord of all. That's what the Sabbath is for. So observing the day, that day is a testimony of the lordship of Yahweh. Jesus saw that the religious leader was using the Sabbath day to separate people. They were using the law to say, you're in and you're out. We, they were using it to say, who's right and who's wrong? Who's good and who's bad? Does this sound familiar? Remind me of how some people in our own country think today, that things are either black or white, and that there's no middle ground. You're either with this party or that party. You're either liberal or conservative. You're either right-wing or left-wing. That is what we call dualistic thinking. And Richard Rohr has this to say about dualistic thinking. It's like, um, you know in the elementary, when you're, I mean, when you were younger, or you might hear your kids say this, like, oh, Jenny's not my friend. How do you know? Because she's so-and-so's best friend. That's dualistic thinking. It's this either-or thinking. So Richard Rohr says this, the lowest level of consciousness is entirely dualistic, that there's a win and a loss. It's either me versus the world and basic survival. And many... I'm afraid, never move beyond this. Then he says this about higher level of consciousness, what higher spirituality is about. He says, the higher levels of consciousness are more and more able to deal with contradiction, with paradoxes, and all mystery. Meaning you're able to get out of a situation a win-win, where both sides win. Not this competition where one person has to win and another person loses in the situation. This is spiritual maturity. At the higher levels, we can teach things like compassion and mercy and forgiveness and selflessness and even the love of enemies. And I wish I was there yet, where I could love an enemy just easily. It's one of the hardest things to do, even to be selfless or to be forgiving when you really think about it. So I go back to the policeman. <laughs> And I'm thinking, man, if the law, intent of the law is to save people's lives, all a policeman really needs to do is be visible, be present. If they just stop on the side of the road and turn on their blue lights, you would get a mass amount of people slowing down their cars. Just because most people respect authority. They don't even need to give a ticket. It doesn't need to be a win-lose. It could be a win-win where... People are slowing down and their lives are saved. And people are not getting into some kind of financial situation because they were fined for speeding when they didn't know. Simple solutions like that where it could be a win-win. We were driving down Waimanalo the other day and I just, we were driving and there was this like blue light and I was like, ooh, police car. So I slowed down. And all it was was this person in front of their house put a blue light. But just seeing the blue light alone makes us think and say, okay, let's check where we are. And it makes a situation of a win-win. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy, I think there's a win-win there. 
So Deuteronomy 5, this is the Ten Commandments again. But there's an interjection in this version of the Ten Commandments. And we're just looking at the Sabbath. So everything is pretty much the same. Observe the Sabbath, keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your ox or your donkey or your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. All that is similar to Exodus. But there's this interjection where it says, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that your Lord, your God, brought you out, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. There's this sense of humanity in there. You do this because you let your workers rest because you were once a slave in Egypt. See, Deuteronomy 5 gives the people of Israel a reason to observe the Sabbath besides death. Yahweh redeemed Israel from slavery and, from, and, and redeemed them out of, the, out of Egypt. And he did this out of compassion and mercy for his people. That's what the Sabbath is about. About compassion and mercy. And I think this is how Jesus interprets his understanding of the Sabbath. See, Exodus relates the Sabbath to creation, and Deuteronomy relates the Sabbath for those who are oppressed, who are with them. See, the Sabbath is about saving a life and doing good, not about taking a life. So the question for us is, how did the religious leaders interpret the rules? And was it a bad interpretation? They found this claim to be threatening to their understanding of who God was. This idea of this new Sabbath, this Jesus' understanding of Sabbath. And they did not like change. They did not like the change that Jesus was making because it was a threat to their existence. And because of that, their hearts got hardened. You know, at my school, there was this one instance where um, we, inclusion is really important. So then the principal came out and said, okay, any teacher who takes inclusion will get like, any choice of what grade level they want to be on and be the first seat. Um, and then I heard this through the grapevine and everything like that, so I, I didn't hear it straight. And then the teachers were supposed to take it back to the rest of the school to let them know this information. And during that meeting, um, I understood that me and this one teacher, um, my co-worker Amy, we did this inclusion class, and she used this as an example of how things, like, to do things really well, and she was really satisfied at the job we did. But the other teachers in my grade level, I think, felt threatened that they were going to lose their position. So they, they didn't come out and tell me, okay, this is the situation. They kind of, like, went around and said, okay, we got to either take this position or else we're going to be out of the position. And they didn't come and tell me the entire information. And I was a little hurt, but I can understand where they're coming from. 
they felt threatened that they would have to change. These are old-time teachers who've been doing it for a long time, and all of a sudden, they might get booted by a younger teacher. So they, they, they did something so that they would keep their position. See, I think this is how the Pharisees felt. They felt threatened by Jesus' um, teaching. See, according to Jesus, the Pharisees could only condemn the innocent because they never really understood Hosea 6.6, where it says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, the whole law exists for the sake of mercy. That's the kind of God we serve. All the law is summed up in one scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees couldn't see the true meaning of Sabbath because they didn't have a heart of love. So for us this morning, are there some things that you hold on to religiously that sucks the life out of either you or the people around you? Are there religious stances that you may take and hold on to tightly? Or is there another way to handle it that exhibits mercy and compassion in order to make it a win-win for everybody? The church has strong stances against abortion and marriage and all those things. But are we taking the right way to deal with it? Are we making it a win-win for everybody? Are there ways in which the church today can get so blinded by its commitment to what appears as necessary rules that it fails to see God's healing and God's restorative work breaking through in our church today and in our world today? So with this, I'll close with a blessing. May you, this morning, be a people of mercy and compassion. May you see the working of God in your life and in the life of others. May you not hold tightly to your religious convictions, but be open to be reshaped and molded to have a deeper knowledge of God. And may you be a people that do good and be life-giver conduits to the world around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.